Hi, Chris Felton here. Welcome to my podcast where we hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. Over the next several months, we're going to take a journey through the years of messages that I've spoken in the last decade that are both memorable, monumental, and I think marking to both me and the global family. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. God bless you. Lord, we bless what you're doing tonight. We bless what you're doing all over the world, especially feel gratitude at this time when we're remembering our forefathers and the things that they stood for, bled for, died for, lived for. And Lord, we, we pray for your grace to extend to us to the hundredth generation, as you said in your word. And we, we bless the word tonight. We pray you'd open our, our ears and our eyes and our hearts and that we'd be able to embrace truth and, and, uh, and see things we haven't seen before. Amen. <clears throat> I, um, I want to talk about the power of shame, compassion, and connection. And it uh, actually came from a dream I had about four nights ago, uh, or five nights ago, right before, the day before um, Thanksgiving. I, um, I, I uh, had this dream, and in the dream, I saw a very close relative of mine I'll, I'll just call him John. Maybe I should call him something. People write me all the time like, don't make it John. My name's John. So how about Mo? Is there anyone in here named Mo? Okay, anybody watching by Bethel TV named Mo? Okay, I see nobody out there. Can you put uh, an hour on the clock or so, 55 minutes or something? Uh, and uh, so it, it, I saw uh, in, in the dream my, my close relative, we'll call him Mo, and uh, <laughs> So for you're going to laugh at Mo every time, so he's just going to be John. <laughs> John's good. Maybe we should call him Eric. <laughs> now call him John. And, uh, and in the dream, uh, this big boa constrictor was after me, and I was crying out to my relative, to John, save me, help me, help me, save me. And, uh, and, I, and I woke up, and I was like, you know, it was one of those dreams where your heart's pounding and you're, I'm still, when I, when I got all the way awake, I'm still saying, save me, help me. And uh, so that, that next uh, morning or that morning when I got up, I called John, who hasn't been, he like, he's usually, he's very close relative, he usually comes to Thanksgiving, Christmas, I haven't seen him in three or four years and uh, at, at one of those events, and I don't talk to him very often. So I called, and in order to, he doesn't have a phone, so in order to get a hold of him, you have to call this person who calls this person, and he calls you back. And so I called the person, and he answered the phone. And I'm like, hi, wow, you don't answer the phone very often. And we had a short conversation, and I said, uh, you know, Thanksgiving's coming in a couple days. I'd like to, for you to come. He's like, yeah, yeah, I got to work, and I don't think I can, you know, I can't be there, I got to work, and I said, well, how about Christmas? You coming for Christmas? Because we haven't seen you in like three Christmases. We'd love to see you at Christmas. And he's like, yeah, I don't know if I can come at Christmas. I, I might have to work. I'm like, no, no. Actually, your job's closed on Christmas, so it'll work fine. And you can get here in an hour, so it should be no problem. He's like, yeah, no, I mean, and he's kind of like, you know, looking for words. And then he said to me, you know, I, I smoke, and I, I know you guys hate everybody in the family hates my smoking, and, and I hate it too, and I just feel really bad that, you know, I, I'm there, and everyone's he's like, you know, it's just like, it's kind of, every time I go outside to smoke, it's kind of a problem, and, and I'm like, it's a problem? It's not a problem, and he's like, oh no, it's a problem. I said, listen, you know, my mom smoked all her life, and I sort of liked her, and I said, I, I, and he's like, well, I know you don't like my smoking. I said, well, I love you much more than I hate your smoking. And you've been welcome at my house forever. It's not a problem. And he's like, yeah, well, okay, well, I'll think about it. And I got off the phone and I was thinking about how he's in the dream and I'm saying to him, help me. And there's a boa constrictor after me. And I'm saying to him, help me. Help me with the snake. Help me with it. And he's the one that has the problem with smoking and doesn't want to come and doesn't want to, doesn't want to participate in our family. And, I, and I, I, so after the phone call, I'm like, oh, he's supposed to help me teach me how people who don't feel like they measure up can be welcomed in. 
And I started realizing like that there are people, you know, a, a funny thing is I'm asking him for help. He's the one that's struggling and I'm the one asking for help. I'm like, how do I get people I love who feel shame to get close to me? And I, uh, and I, I realized that, that we're kind of in this, uh, we're kind of in this dilemma of, you know, Jesus in Matthew 28, he said, make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I taught you. And I feel like I'm often in this catch 22 and that I'm trying to bring righteousness and, and, and right living and truth to culture, to community, to family, to our children. And at the same time, sometimes in our quest for righteousness, we in, in, inevitably shame people who don't feel like they measure up. How many of you have any idea what I'm talking about? I, I feel like we're in this, this, this kind of situation where how do I teach people everything Jesus taught me and how do I still connect with people who, including me and you, all of us, who go through seasons or have a lifestyle that doesn't measure up? And, and how do I say, this is right, but I love you more than being right? <laughs> And it's, it's really a challenge in our culture, isn't it? Because Isaiah cried out and he said, in the last days they're going to say that good is evil and evil is good. And we see that in our culture. It's like things that are in, you know, uh, obviously wrong are now being argued as right. And it's been that way for the last 30, 40 years. And, and this has happened all through history in, in different waves. And it's like, how do I connect with people? I was, I was thinking about you know, this dilemma of Sometimes in our quest to, to connect with people, we have to pretend that what they're doing is okay. <laughs> or sometimes when I'm trying to create a, a culture, when I'm trying to help a culture of righteousness, I'm try, sometimes I, as I just said, sometimes I shame people instead of bring any kind of, if you will, righteousness to people. And I was thinking about the, you know, what do you say to an anorexic person? Do you say, oh, yes, you, you, you are looking kind of fat. <laughs> or what you're doing is great for you. I remember the first time I ever actually helped try to help an anorexic person. I, I had met a few and, um, you know, from a distance, uh, seen people that obviously were struggling and, and had a couple of friends who actually had bulimia or anorexia. It was pretty obvious, but I had never really tried to help them. Like, I didn't understand, like, what was actually going on in them. Until I think it was the year, first year, or the beginning of the second year when I was at Bethel, this gal came in. She was a, 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 a lady in her uh, late 20s, and she was about 70 pounds, 71, 2, 3 pounds, and a, a woman that should have been 120, 130 pounds. And she sat in my office, and, and uh, we talked through. She actually came in for help, and like, okay, this is going to be challenging. I've never actually tried to help anyone who had anorexia. I've never even talked to anybody who had, I don't even know why they have anorexia. I don't even understand what's going on. And she began to tell me how obsessed she is of being fat, that she's fat. I mean, she's obviously skin and bones. She obviously looks like she's going to die from starvation. And she's telling me that she's fat. And I remember like sitting there thinking, well, she obviously has stood in a mirror before. She obviously has seen herself every day in a mirror, and yet what she sees isn't what she sees. <laughs> what she sees isn't what she perceives. Are you, are you following me? And, and I'm like, do I tell her, like, how do I connect with her? Do I tell her, like, is it going to help her to say, uh, oh, no, you really look good like that? Or, yeah, I'm, I think that your diet works fine for you. Uh, I connect with people that are, you know, thin like that. You're, you were born thin. It's like, no, she obviously has a problem if she doesn't change the way she sees herself and ultimately the way she nourishes herself, she's literally going to die. And so this is, what, this is the challenge we have in culture because sin kills us. And so when somebody lives a lifestyle of sin, trying to connect with them by pretending that what they're doing is okay, in my mind, is not a great way to connect with people. But on the other side of that, living a, teaching and living and living out a noble, righteous life sometimes creates a standard for people that they feel shame and guilt and they 
They don't want to be around you. And this is a challenge. And I, I was just thinking about some ways through this dream and through the connection with John, I was, I was sitting just in my chair and I was thinking like, how can I help John connect? And I, I, these are just really simple, but I thought, uh, first of all, we need to be humble by remembering where we came from. Like, you know, John is in the same place. I've been in that place before. I've been in a place away from God, feeling, feeling shame, not measuring up. I, I, I grew up like that. And so I think sometimes it's important that when people are stuck in shame, that empathy comes from remembering where you've come from. I was thinking uh, the second one is that we love people for who they are and not for who they should be or could be. I, I think sometimes we, in our prophetic nature, especially in our movement, we sometimes love people, maybe unknowingly, and put pressure on people for who they should be, who they should become, like the vision God has for them. And I think that people need to know that I am loved, not because I perform, but because of who I am. That I am just loved. And I, I think it's important for us to, to, to not just say it, but there needs to be a feeling that I love you not for what you can be, not for what you can become, and not for what you can do for me, but I love you just because you're you. You know, we say to young people all the time, like, don't marry someone so you can change them bad plan. I won't have you raise your hands if you did that. <laughs> but all of us in the front row have counseled people who have gotten married for the potential they see in someone. And I'm like, that's all fine. It's good to have someone believe in you, but you need to love me for who I am, not for who I could be. Uh, the third one I thought of was sometimes we parade our accomplishments in front of the broken. Like, we don't even know we're doing it. I this person uh, I'm calling John, um, I've sent him a couple of my books. And I, I, you know, I, I think I was doing it with a good heart, but I think it came across to him like, I've written books, and what have you done with your life? He says to me, you know, in the times when we've been together, you know, I've never really done anything with my life. Like, you know, you, you, you write books, and, and you, know, you help people, and I, I don't really do anything with my life. And I, I realized that that day on the phone, when he hung up, I realized, like, in my efforts to encourage him, I've actually brought my flashy, shiny stuff to our relationship. And what it's actually done is caused him to feel like he doesn't measure up. Like, you've accomplished something, and I haven't. How many understand, God doesn't value me because I accomplished something. Because I have a nice car, a nice house. I, I grew up poor. I mean, was I less? Did God love me less when I was poor? Did he, did he love me less in Weaverville when we were broke? No, it's just like money, things, it's, they're all nice. But how I many you know they don't take the place of people you love? Number five, oh, number four. We need to give people hope without requiring them to change. That, that seems kind of a contradiction. Like, we need to give people hope, but oftentimes when we give people hope, we're actually saying, you know, I believe you can change. <laughs> and I think that, that you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? I'm saying sometimes in our zeal to give people hope, we're actually saying, there's something wrong with you because you should change. <laughs> I, I, I love when people come up and they say, Gosh, you lost so much weight. I think, well, the last time you saw me, you must have thought I was fat. <laughs> Subconsciously, people are like, you were fat last time I saw you. You lost so much weight. It's like, you know, they're trying to give you a compliment, but on the other side of it, it's like they're saying, oh, this is what I was thinking of you when I, when I had a relationship with you before however long that was. I haven't seen you for six months. Boy, you lost a lot of weight. In other words, you were so fat last time I saw you. And sometimes in our zeal to give people hope, we actually say, you're not measuring up. You're not good enough. Something's wrong with you. Uh, number five, um, be empathetic. Listen from the heart without feeling the need to correct their opinions. Uh, this is pretty big for all of us preachers. Like there's something about, you know, when somebody says, I mean, I have a conversation with John like, you know, just, you know, the world is just a hard place. And, you know, basically, you know, you just, it's a dog eat dog. 
And, and you know, when people talk like that, I feel like I should jump in and say, well, maybe that's the way it is for you, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus died on the cross for you, so it's not a dog-eat-dog world. You got somebody in your corner. But some, sometimes I think that when we jump in with a, let me fix your thinking, it says, you're not good enough. You're stupid. Let me tell you the way it's supposed to be. Number six, show an interest in their lives. Um, I'm thinking, of course, of John, but lots of other people that I, that I know too, but sometimes it's hard to find interest in people's lives when they're not motivated. To be totally honest, like John's life is about going to the bar and watching football. It's like, I like football, but it doesn't, I don't get up in the morning for it. Like, I don't know all the stats and all the players of all the teams because I just watch my team and, and not living for the game. So what I'm getting at is like, sometimes it's, it's hard to connect with people who don't have a great vision for the life. And yet that's partly how we connect with people. It's like, what are you, how's your team? What's going on? Did you watch the game? Just like taking a simple interest in like, what interests you may not interest me, but I'm interested in you. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not interested in your interest, but I'm interested in you. Therefore, I'll figure out a way to be interested in your interest. And this last one is huge, and I just, remember, I just thought of it this morning when it was kind of finishing preparing. Often people who live in shame, often people in shame live in fantasy to numb the pain of reality and give themselves hope. John, his whole life, I say his whole life, from the time he was like 20, he would say, I'm going to win the lottery. It, and at first, it, we, we'd kind of clown around about it. And I realized, like, after 10 or 12 or 15 years of serious conversations, he's like, I'm literally going to win the He's like, he'd never say this this way, but I'm going to win the lottery. And when someone would win the lottery, it's like a testimony of Jesus. Like, I'm next. I play the lottery, and I'm going to be the guy who gets the ticket, and that's going to be my ticket out of shame, right? My ticket out of poverty. I'm going to have stuff. I'm going to have nice things because I'm going to win the lottery. And I, and I, you know, and I realized, especially with John, like I would have these long conversations with him like, that's stupid. And what I realized is that oftentimes people who have high levels of shame live in a fantasy, and that fantasy is what gives them some level of hope that someday I'll get out. And even though they're not hoping in Jesus, they're not depressed because they have this, you know, man in white, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 a knight in shining armor is going to come along, and he's going he's to be perfect. He's not going to have any defects. He's not going to have any flaws. He's going to be semi-not human. And he's going to knock on my door because I don't date. And he's like, I had a vision from God. And he said, come here, climb up your steps, because I know your hair, you cut it years ago, <sighs> and I'm going to rescue you from the castle, and, 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 it's, and, and it's, it's probably never going to happen. But here's the deal. It's hard for people to be convicted of sin before they're convinced of a Savior. And sometimes we take away the fantasy before they actually have a reality of truth. I'm saying we push people deeper into shame because we go, let me pop that bubble you're living in, and they have no other bubble. I'm not saying fantasy is okay, are you with me? I'm simply saying like, when you live in shame, fantasy is kind of the way you sustain yourself until you find a place of truth and walk out. It's important to give them a sense of hope before we destroy the fantasy, as fantasy often numbs pain to a terrible reality. Um, you know, I've uh, shared the story of uh, Brene Brown so many times in the last four years, I feel almost embarrassed to share it, but I was, because I, I had that dream, I know I was supposed to speak on shame. And Brene Brown, if you haven't uh, ever heard her speak, there's a 16-minute TED Talk 
called The Power of Vulnerability. How many of you have seen that TED Talk? Oh, good, probably half the room. Uh, that's how good the TED Talk is, right? Would everyone agree with that? That raised your hand? It's, 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 you know, Jason sent me the link to it, my son, and he said, Dad, you need to listen to this TED Talk. And I'm like, I know he's going to ask me the next day, like, did you listen to the TED Talk? So like, I, I you know, clicked on the link on my phone, and I was watching the, uh, the NBA game, and I, so I had it on, and I was watching it here, and I, just so I could say, yeah, I saw it really good, and not lie, of course, you know, because you don't want to lie. And so I got a four minutes into this TED Talk, and it was so good, I paused the game, I went in my office and put it on the big screen, started all over, and took 16 pages of notes that night. And I was like, this is powerful. Now, I, I've since listened to it many other times. I probably listened to it 20, 30 times over the last four years. And, you know, later on, it didn't have the same impact. But I think for where I was, you know how God gives you a right word in the right season? I think where I was is like, it was such a prophetic teaching moment for me that I think it made a huge impact on me. And, um, and I, I, I love what she said. And I, for those of you that haven't seen it, and for those of you who have, I, I haven't watched it for over a year, so the details I have may not be exactly right. So give me a little grace. But she, uh, Brene Brown, is, she has three degrees in, uh, uh, she's a, uh, in social work. I don't know why you need three. I have none, and I've done, I've done, I've done fine. <laughs> <laughs> and she felt that, she felt, and by the way, my understanding is, um, and I don't know if this is accurate because it came from somebody who knows her, and I, I, I don't know her, I've never talked to her, but I heard that she wasn't a believer when she began this journey to find out this one thing. She said she wanted to figure out if there was one core reason, one thing that gives everybody meaning in life. Is there one thing? Like, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, male, female, what country you were born in, what ethnic group, what's your background, what's your education. Is there one thing that everybody is driven by? And she studied and she interviewed thousands of people and this is what she came to after all of her interviews. She came to this one conclusion. She said that, and I'll put it in her words, she said she learned that everyone is neurobiologically wired for connection. In my words, everybody needs relationship. Like, no matter where you are, no matter what country you live in, whether you're poor, rich, black, white, yellow, doesn't matter, everybody needs this one thing. Like, you live for this one thing. I need connection. In the midst of that, she said, this is her words. I think this is on the TED Talk. Now I've watched her so many other places, but I think it's on the TED Talk. And she said, in the midst of that, she had a breakdown, which she said was a spiritual awakening. I heard that she found the Lord through her therapist. I don't know if that's true. But from there, after those two years to discover what every single person is motivated by, she asked herself a question. Well, if everybody wants to be connected, how come many people are not connected? And so for the next five years, she did this intensive survey and studying people, again, from all over the world, studying thousands of people, surveying thousands of people, doing thousands of interviews. And she learned this thing. What is the number one reason why people are not connected? And she said, it's shame. She said, shame is the number one enemy of relationship, of connection. And here's what she said. She said, shame is the fear of disconnection. She, she described it like this. She said, shame says there is something about me that if people knew it, they would make, it would make me unworthy of their connection. She said, shame she, she, she contrasted shame and guilt, and she said, shame's, guilt says, I'm, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not spiritual enough. Whatever the culture values, I'm not that. And I fear that you'll figure it out if you have a relationship with me. So she, she broke the people up into two groups, and she said, okay, Here's the people who have shame and who've lived in shame. Here's the people who have shame, but they've come out of shame. And by the way, she said, everybody in the world has experienced shame. She said, the more you deny 
that you've experienced shame, the more likely you are in the middle of it. She said, everyone has experienced shame. It's like fear, like anxiety. It it's just happens, and everyone has experienced it before. So she began to survey, like, why do these people stay in shame? They never come out. And why do, how do these people get out of shame? Like, what's the difference? And this is what she learned. She learned that everyone who walked out of shame had this one thing in common. Like, they all had different things in common, but the people who walked out of shame all had one thing in common, and that is they were vulnerable. And vulnerability, she said this, this is her definition, vulnerability is the ability to be seen and known. Vulnerability breaks the power of shame. Vulnerability says, I love you before you say you love me. And she said, vulnerability is the birthplace of joy, happiness, creativity, belonging, and love. So she said, these people stayed in shame because they refused to be vulnerable. And these people came out because they became vulnerable. So then she asked herself the obvious question, like, why do some people be vulnerable and other people not? Like, why, if you want connection and you want relationship, why don't you get vulnerable so you can have what you're neurobiologically wired for? And she said that everybody who came out of shame and became vulnerable had this one thing in common. She called it worthiness. It's the belief that I deserve to be loved and I belong. The difference between people who were vulnerable or refused to be vulnerable and the people who were vulnerable were the people who were vulnerable had a deep sense that even though they felt shame, they felt that they deserved to be loved. How many of you know Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself? How many of you know you have to have a big as if you want to come out of shame? <laughs> as, that's A-S. And it's probably the probably only thing some people will remember in the message. <laughs> you have to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And she said, everybody who loved themselves came out of shame. Is that powerful? And then she said this, and the people who had the sense of worthiness that helped them out of shame all had one more thing in common. They all were courageous. And here's how she define courage. She said, courage comes from the Latin word cur, and it means heart. Courage means to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. You might call it being fully alive, being fully actualized. It's like, I can tell you my story with courage because I believe I'm worthy to be loved. And she said, courage is compassion for yourself. I love that statement. Courage is compassion for yourself. And the last one is this. And she said, everyone who was vulnerable because they felt worthy and were courageous, they all had this last thing in common. They were all authentic. And here's how she defined authenticity. The ability to let go of who you think you should be so you can be who you really are. Such a beautiful teaching. The ability to let go of who you think you should be so you can be who you really are. People who will become authentic, they break the power of shame in their life. There's something about authenticity. There's something about realizing that I was actually born... I was actually born flawed on purpose. This is the truth. I said this last week or two weeks ago when I taught last, that, you know, we take, we, we love Strength Finders, this book called Strength Finders, and by the way, I recommend you read it. It's a great book, and you take the Strength Finders test after you read the book. I sort of cheated. I skimmed the book and took the test. <laughs> I passed. <laughs> the first test I've passed since high school. It's kind of cool. I didn't do well in high school. Well, except for the driver's test. I want that to be clear. I do have a license. But, uh, you know, and that test basically teaches you, like, it, it exposes, like, what are your five strengths? And I, I have them in my phone in case you want to know what they might be. But I do have some, so I thought that was cool. 
But I often think that, you know, the Lord, I often think it kind of goes like this, like we go, Lord, here's my five strengths. And he's like, that's amazing. We won't be using you there. (laughs) See, I actually think we're obsessed with our strengths. I think we get obsessed. We're like, what am I good at? You know, and, we, and we're in the mirror every day. And, and, you know, and people will say things like, I don't care what people think about me. And spend an hour in the freaking mirror trying to look beautiful. And if you're anything like me, you're like, I wish I didn't have that no, like the nose like that. You know? And you get older, you start to get a geezer. And you're like, I'm getting a geezer. <laughs> and all these things you don't like about you. you know? It's like, and I just, you just like, you're just you're like, I'm not that I wish I had hair or didn't have hair. I wish I was skinnier, fatter. I'm just looking in the mirror. I'm like, okay, that's the best I can do with what I've been given. (laughs) And I walk away just, you know, knowing I'm flawed and obsessed with what I, what am I strong at? What am I good at? And how many know, and then God comes and says, and where you're weak, I am strong. And your, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And I'm like, God intentionally made you weak in areas. And nobody writes a book like, here's my five weaknesses. Here's Weakness Finder. Here's the new book that's going to come out. The Weakness Finder. Here, here, take this test. And this is like where you suck. Here's the five areas you suck. And then at the end of it, it goes, this is where God will likely use you. And we all think that no one else is dealing with this. I I, I mean, I remember being a youth pastor and having 16, 17-year-old stunningly beautiful women who are convinced they're ugly. I'm like, if you're ugly, I don't know what that says about me. (laughs) You know, it's just like, stop! You are killing me. And I'm saying, God made Weakness, he programmed it right into you. When I'm talking about weakness, just to be clear, I'm not talking about immorality. I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about frailties. I'm talking about there are things in you that are intentionally wrong. <laughs> like, you, can you imagine if God was a, a car manufacturer, he'd be like, okay, before that one rolls off, put a dent in the right fender. <laughs> Knock the headlight out of that one. What are we doing? Oh, wherever they are weak, they'll need me. I'm saying God intentionally dented you. (laughs) I didn't say he tore your motor out or made your tire flat, but he intentionally dented you. Like he wants you to know like, you're not perfect. Why? Because that's where you seek him. That's where you look for him. Get over it. I'm trying to be other people. Like, how many of you tried that? I tried Bill for three years, like being here, like preaching like Bill, you know? Stands off the side. Like, now we got, thankfully, Eric had this really good idea to put this ledge up here. <laughs> I stands up, like, I'm scared of heights. So if I'm standing up here, like, I really am being edgy. I'm not just trying to pretend to be, you know? And then you say something and you, then you just pause. Eric knows. We all know, right? We've all tried it. Eric tried it too. Like, we all try it. Like, you say something, you're like. And people are like, oh, he forgot his message. This doesn't work. Or Bill, who's, he's a lot funnier now, but he didn't used to be funny, you know? So you try to be serious, like a whole message, serious message. You can imagine, like, me trying to be serious for 45 minutes. I'd be like trying to run in a straitjacket, like, I can't even know how to do that. I don't even know how to talk and not be funny. But you just have to be heavy revvies, you know, heavy revvies, like, woo, wow, wow. I'll tell you what, though, one thing I noticed that Bill doesn't have this, I have the gift of curing insomnia with my preaching. You wouldn't believe how many people I put to sleep.
I'm saying when, we, when you're shamed, you just want to be somebody else. You want to do it differently. Like whoever's got the stuff, whoever's doing the thing. I mean, have you ever felt shame in your life? I remember, uh, I remember going to school as a kid and, and we, were, you know, we grew up poor when we were kids and, and there was the voucher line. Did anyone remember the voucher line? Some of our older folks, like when you, if you were on welfare, you stood in the voucher line for lunch. You know, six of us in a school of 1,500 stood in the voucher line. Most of the other kids just went hungry who were, have vouchers because they're not going to stand in the voucher line and let everybody shame them. I can still remember being in the voucher line in seventh grade, eighth grade, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, being in the voucher line. Uh, it took me about a year to realize, like, none of the cool kids are in the voucher line. Even if they need vouchers, even if they had vouchers, they didn't stand in the voucher line. You, you know that sense? There's something wrong with me. I remember when the renewal happened, 1995, I think, it 94, 95, in Weaverville, and people were falling down. My wife, I was carrying my wife home, drunk. <laughs> like every Sunday morning, I'd carry my wife home drunk. We missed a whole football season almost. It's terrible. And my pastor was drunk, and his wife was drunk, and everybody was drunk except for me. And they started labeling people who they prayed for, who we prayed for, and they didn't fall down hard to receive. I was in the hard to receive line for 18 years. I remember one time John and Carol Arnott, who I love, came and we lined people up on lines. And on the, when we lined them up on lines in here and all the way in all the hallways, and they went by and just prayed for them. And I, honest to God, if there was any more than one person standing besides me, I, I, don't, I didn't see them. I was the only person standing at the end of two hours of prayer. Everybody else was on the ground. And I stood there while they laughed and rolled around, and my wife was one of them. And I stood there. I don't know what you think about that, but I can tell you that it's not easy to go home every night where everyone's like, this is wonderful, God's moving, and you're like, what's wrong with me? Like, something's wrong with me. And, you know, of course, Kathy and Bill and everybody's really encouraging, you know, God's just touching you the way he's touching you. I'm like, that means not at all. People would be like, that was so amazing. What a great night. Man, I love when it goes to two o'clock in the morning. That's just five more hours of shame. The only guy standing, the only guy not shaking, the only guy that doesn't get drunk. And I'm saying it's not, it's, I'm just simply saying it's like, I'm just giving you an example, like a wonderful season where you don't fit in. And you, you know, I could lay on the floor and pretend and I'm like, am I going to be authentic? Because I just don't do fake and I'm not certain that some of those people who were laying on the floor, and I'm not judging anybody, just weren't feeling the same thing I was feeling. And they're like, I'm on the floor because I'm not going to stand out in front of all these people and say, God's not touching me. And I'm like, I just don't do that. I just have this weird thing in me. And I, I, I know it's, it's probably part of my broken part to be, if I'm really being honest. Like, there's just this thing in me. I am not going to fake it. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to preach a message I'm not really living. If I do preach a message I'm not living, I always say, I'm learning this. I don't have this down. There's just something in me that wants people to know, what you see is what you get. I live the same thing at home. There's nothing different. But the side effect of that is, is that sometimes you feel shame because you're not fitting in. First uh, John uh, 1, why don't we use the Bible here? <laughs> why don't you turn to 1 John chapter 1, and I want to just read a couple of verses. If we say we have fellowship with him, speaking of Jesus, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all unrighteousness from all sin. Uh, I just want to read that last line. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all righteousness. That word fellowship is the word koinonia. Uh, if you were a Christian in the 80s, this is a big deal. Like, you go to koinonia meetings, and you'd have koinonia groups. We had koinonia home groups, and it was all about this thing of koinonia, and everybody, it was kind of a revelation people were getting. And, and, and this is so, it's kind of coming from my 
from my, from my culture, my background. I, and I, I learned in those days that, that koinonia, by the way, the word koinonia, it doesn't, just mean, um, it doesn't just mean fellowship, it means partnership. In fact, one of the words for koinonia, one of the words translated in English, koinonia, is intercourse. It's not talking about intercourse like sexual, sexual intercourse. It's talking about the intercourse that we have in connection. It's like right now, you, you just you prayed for each other a little while ago, and we had you hug each other. Not koinonia. That's not koinonia. Koinonia is when we are so connected that our lives are actually in partnership with one another. And, and John says here that if we have koinonia, that if we have fellowship, that's what causes us to be set free from sin. Like, it's, um, you know, we have a saying in America, it takes a village to raise a child. It actually takes a village to raise a Christian. <laughs> it actually takes other people interacting with me, interacting with you, not just like, hey, how you doing? Give me a hug. I mean, it takes partnership. And in this intercourse of partnership, if you will, in this intercourse of partnership, the blood of Jesus frees us, but he frees us in community, not in isolation. Are you following me? So what happens is, it's a catch-22, isn't it? Because I need fellowship to be set free from shame. And yet, the reason I don't have fellowship is because I am ashamed. Am I making sense? Like, I'm inoculated from the very thing I need, or I, the very thing I need, I'm inoculated from. It's like, I am not going to get rid of the shame unless I actually get connected. I have to brave the shame to get connected because it's the blood of Jesus through koinonia that cleanses me from this crappy shame I feel. I'm not going to get home. I'm not going to stay home and isolate myself. You understand what I mean. I, I believe in having some quiet time, downtime. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way I live. I'm not going to live a lifestyle of isolation and have the shame go away. Actually, what's going to happen, it's going to grow in my life. And I know it by experience, and everyone in this room knows that. I don't solve problems all by myself. God's made sure I need other people. Interesting, in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it's talking about the early church, right after they get saved. It says, and all of these believers, these brand new believers, it says they were devoting themselves, listen to this, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking the bread, and prayer. Uh, let me read it one more time and see if you catch this piece. They were continually devoting themselves in other words, they didn't devote themselves once. They had, to keep devoting, they had to keep devoting themselves. Anyone else have habits, good habits that go away? You have to kind of come back to it. Like, they had to keep devoting themselves. Like, they, they would wander off from it, and they'd come back to it. They'd keep devoting themselves to it. To the apostles' teaching, which you kind of would think that would be on the list of four. To fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, the way that I would have read that when I got saved with the Jesus people movement is it would have went like this. And they continually devoted themselves to prayer, the apostles teaching, and they hung out a little bit and ate together. But Luke writes it, they devoted themselves first to the apostles teaching, then to koinonia. He mentions fellowship as the second most important thing they did above prayer. I don't know if that's actually true as far as like what's more important, but my point is he mentions it first. It's in the list of four things they did. And the, and the third thing they did was ate together. I'm simply saying like, why was the early church strong? Of course they had teaching and they had prayer, but they connected, they had intercourse together. You know what I'm saying? They, they connected, they had partnership they ate together, took their meals together, they hung out together, and they took care of each other, and it grew from koinonia, not just prayer and teaching. Uh, listen to this. Um, I love this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16 says, Do not neglect doing good, sharing, for, what, uh, for such... I'm sorry. Let me read it again. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, you're probably like, what does that have to do with it? The word sharing is the word koinonia. Uh, uh, the Hebrew writer just said, koinonia, fellowship, is a sacrifice. 
Have you ever had a friend over you didn't feel like having them over? <laughs> the Hebrew writer goes, that's holy. Hey, let's have some friends over. I don't feel like it. That doesn't matter. You need them. It's just said, fellowship is a sacrifice at times. Have you ever had friends over you didn't want them over? Like you invited them over like a month ago? And then they come, and then when they, oh, hey, tonight's the night they're coming. Oh, crap, you know, they're coming over. Okay, everybody put on your happy face, you know. We're all good, we're good. But then you have the best night of your life. How many have ever had that happen? Yeah, thank you. Thought you wanted me over, but then looked like you didn't. In Luke 15, we have the story of the prodigal son, or actually the Bible calls it the story of two sons. And the only thing I was thinking about in this story is both brothers were actually experiencing shame, but they dealt with it differently. The one brother, as we know, the brother that kind of gets the bad rap, he, he, he goes and he's, he's looking for meaning in life, and he tells his dad, give me some money, give me my inheritance, and we know he goes spends it on prostitutes until he realizes, like, oh, that didn't work, and now he's in deeper shame, right? And I love this part. It says, and when he came to himself, in the Greek it says, and when he came to himself, he went home. What broke shame in his life? Well, let me say, we don't know if it actually broke shame, but it gave him courage to go after shame. What did it? Identity. He said, I'm better than this. The elder brother kind of gets, he's kind of the good guy in the movie, but actually the elder brother is as screwed up as the little brother. The elder brother finds out that the young brother's coming home, and instead of being excited, he's mad. And he's mostly mad because his dad runs out and gives him the robe, the ring, and the sandals. Like his dad doesn't like, you, 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 you know, you used all my money on prostitutes, you, you. And the elder brother's like, you didn't shame him. <laughs> you didn't correct him. You didn't, you should have made him work or something. Because the older brother goes, you gave him the fattened calf. Notice that was a fattened calf. But anyway, <laughs> gave him the fattened calf. And you haven't even given me a goat. And his brother, you could see why the, his, his younger brother left. The older brother is like, he should have to work hard and work his way back in. You shouldn't just automatically like take him all back and then give him the robe, the ring, and the sandals and then have a party for him. And his brother's mad because like, I do good every day and you have no party for me. And he does good one day and you have a party for him. What's up with that? And how many can see that the older brother, he's working through shame by trying to get an identity through his effort. I work hard I'm the man. I have identity because of what I've done. How many of you know both brothers are messed up? And his father says to him, the wisest words, of course. He says, listen, I haven't given you a goat, but you own the whole farm. I gave your brother one goat. You own the whole freaking farm. What's the problem? Your brother got one goat. You own all the farm. It's so funny, don't matter what condition you're in in life, shame can actually be ruling you. You think shame was just with the prodigal kid because he did all the wrong stuff, and yet shame's with the religious kid. Also, they're both dealing with shame. Isaiah 61, I love this passage. You know, it's the passage that says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. And it talks about healing the brokenhearted, releasing captives and prisoners, and done all this crazy, amazing stuff to these broken people, right? And one of the words in the Hebrew is that God's healing the broken, the, the shattered minds. God's healing shattered minds. He's healing broken hearts. He's healing people that are captives and prisoners. And then after he gets them healed, verse 4 says, And then they, the broken people, they'll go back and rebuild the ruined cities, right? Such a beautiful passage. But listen to what it says about them after, the rooms, the, after that, verse four. It says, and strangers will pastor your flocks, the broken peoples who were once broken. Are you following me? 
And strangers will pass your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You'll be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. And listen to this last this verse. Instead of shame, instead of shame, you'll have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, you will shout for joy over your portion. I just love that verse because, you know, how do I get out of shame? Well, God will break shame over me. God says, no longer, you're going to not even remember your shame anymore, and I'm going to give you a double portion, and you're going to be shouting about how amazing God made you. I like that verse. I can see you didn't get it as well as I did, but there again, you're not me. I know you'd want to be, but you're not that funny. Isaiah 54 is another great verse. It's talking about a woman who's not married and barren, and she's in shame because she can't have children. She's obviously not married, so no one's chose her. She can't have children. Her, her, her life is about, I want to marry, I want to have kids. I, I'm around a world of women who have children. I feel ashamed because, you know, it's not happening for me. And here's what uh, the Lord prophesied over here. Shout for joy, barren one, you who have borne no children. Break forth into joyful shouting, and, and uh, I'm sorry, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate woman will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge your place of tent, stretch out your curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords, strengthen your pigs, for you will spread abroad to the right and left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle desolate cities. Listen to this, fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not, and you, and you, <laughs> Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. I love this. God's going, okay, you know, she's like, I can't have children. I got no husband. All these people are married. My whole dream is to have a family. And God goes, start shouting. Four, shout before you have the children. And then make room for kids. Like, like, lengthen your cords. I mean, it's all about, for her, it's kids about kids. For us, it might be some other thing you're giving birth to, right? But the idea is, like, if you start shouting ahead of time, I'm going to give you children, and you're going to have more children than the people you're hanging out with. And your children, they're going to be amazing. They're going to settle desolate nations. And then you'll forget the shame of your youth and the shame of your widowhood, because I am going to prosper you. Like, what do I do if I feel ashamed? Start shouting. There you go. That's good right there. Illustrated sermon. Thank you. You know, it's not, I, you know, let's go. Okay, I'm yelling. Sorry. Okay. I was excited. Then I realized I yelled through my whole message, especially when people put the earplugs in. I'm like, I'm yelling. I'm not talking just about shouting. I'm talking about anticipating. I am not staying here. Whatever my condition is, with this woman, it was about having a family and having children. And she's like, I'm never going to get married, and nothing's ever happened good to me, da-da-da. And God goes, start shouting and make room for your kids, because you're going to have so many kids. You're going to have more kids than the married women that you know right now. But for you, it might be something different, right? For this woman, her dream is children. For you, it might be something different. The point isn't to yell or shout. The point is, I trust God. He's going to break this thing over my life. And I begin to connect with God. Sometimes shame doesn't just separate me from you. It separates me from God. I remember, again, bringing up the people falling down and shaking for years. I remember how the early days affected my relationship with God. I would spend my time praying, thinking about what's wrong with me. Maybe I have a demon. Maybe, maybe I have a secret sin. And people, you know, you know, in their zeal to help you, it's just like, hey, you lost weight. You know, in their zeal to help you, it's not always helpful. They'd be like, hey, you know, maybe you're just not giving yourself totally to God. I'm like, well, yesterday I prayed for a girl who doesn't know God. And she fell on the floor shaking for three hours. True story. And I carried her to her parents' house and had to explain to her parents, who were both atheists, 
that the girl's under the power of God. <laughs> and the girl was a drug addict and a drunk. And in the room, when the power of God came, she ended up on the floor and didn't even know what happened to her until she finally went out. So I'm like, if God could touch her, certainly I'm doing a little bit better than that if we got a little bit comparative shame going on here. I'm like, I least, at least prayed the prayer. And I'm reading the Bible on semi-regular basis. You, you know, these are the calisthenics you go through when you feel shame. It's like, I'm trying to like justify like, well, he touched her. How come she's not hard to touch? <laughs> like, what's wrong with me? Like, well, some people just, you know, they're, yeah, uh, whatever. <laughs> you know what broke it for me? I'll tell you the honest truth. One day I was praying and I was doing that thing I just told you about, like, what's wrong with me? Like, let me look at my navel. Oh my goodness, it's got hair in it, you know? <laughs> just that, you know, that whole thing, you're just like, you just, you're so obsessed with everything that's wrong with you. And the Lord said to me, this is very clear, clearly, like it wasn't audible, but it was, it was so strong, it could have been audible. He said to me, I touch you however I want to touch you, and it isn't any of your business. And then he said to me, I touched Solomon, and he got smart. I touched Samson, and he got strong. I touched the craftsmen, and they got wise. What is it to you? how I touch you. It's not any of your business. Just do what I've told you to do and stop comparing yourself to everybody else in the room and you and I will be fine. Actually happened. I told you about it. It actually happened. And it honestly, I mean, I'm not saying I never struggle again, but I went back to that word. I'm like, I actually wrote it in my journal and I'm like, God touches people how he touches them. I'm still waiting for what happens when God touches me. Oh, I got good looking. That's something I don't know. I just have one more point I want to make. It's probably five minutes. In 2 Samuel, there's a story of Mephibosheth. Now, I hope that's how you pronounce his name. But I'm thinking in Hebrew, it's probably like... (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had anyone who actually reads Hebrew read the Bible in Hebrew? It is nothing like any of us pronounce any name. So I'm like, you just say it however you want. It's wrong anyway, Just like when I sit down at a restaurant and people are like, Mr. Balatan. I'm like, close enough. So David is, uh, he's become king. And he's, uh, he's a, a couple of years, a few years into his kingship. And uh, Saul, you'll remember Saul was the former king. And Jonathan, Saul's son, um, was in line to be king and gave his robe to David, basically passed the kingship off to David, and then died in battle, and Saul, King Saul died in battle. Now, just a little history. Typically, because these were kings and not presidents, the next king that comes in was typically the heir, uh, the youngest, I mean, the oldest son. So if you uh, somehow won the kingship and you weren't like, for instance, Jonathan was supposed to be the next king. He doesn't become king. David becomes king. David would typically kill off all Saul's sons so that they didn't try to rightfully become heirs to the throne and his grandsons. That's the way it kind of worked. It sounds really evil. I'm sure it was, but that's what they did. So David, uh, all of Saul's sons actually died in battle and Jonathan's son also, all his sons died in battle. So David's, um, he's got the throne now and he says to his, his guys, his servants, like, is there any sons of Saul that I can honor? And they go, um, yeah, there's this one guy, Mephibosheth, and he is lame. Um, he's been lame since he was a little boy. And he's the only son of Jonathan who's left in the whole lineage. And David says, bring him to the palace. So they go get him and they bring him. And you can imagine what, what Mephibosheth is thinking. He's probably completely terrified. When he gets to David's house or the palace or wherever it was that they had dinner, he falls down on his face. He, you know, he can't walk anyway. He's lame. He falls down on his face and he starts begging for his life. And he says to David, I'm a dog. I'm a dog. Just, I, I'm just a dog. It's just telling David, like, I'm never going to try to get the throne. You don't have to kill me. And David said, oh, no, no, get up. And he gets him up. And you'll probably remember the story if you 
read this uh, a while back. But he gets him up and he says to him, I am going to honor you because of the covenant I have with your father and because your grandfather was king. And you will sit at my table from this day forward. And I will set my servants and they will, and I am giving you all the land that your grandfather owned. I'm giving it back to you. And my servants will till your fields and keep your flocks the rest of your life. I love this part. And he says, and you will sit at my table. How many understand that when Mephibosheth, I was doing so good, can't overthink this, you'll really mess it up. When Mephibosheth was sitting at the table of the king with all the other, with all the other princes, his lameness was covered. He was sitting at the noble king's table. Are you with me? And his shame was covered. You will sit at my table. And all the things that you have been shamed about that you can't do. I can't plow my fields. I can't be a worker. You can imagine what it was like in those days. I mean, you couldn't get a computer job. You couldn't get a desk job. There were no desk jobs. I mean, if you were a man and you were lame, you, were, you get it. Your identity's gone. And David's like, and you, and you will be a master over all my servants who will till your fields. What did David do? He just restored his identity and said, your shame is covered in this house. How many know nobility covers shame? You remember, I'll finish with this verse, Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. First verse I ever memorized in the entire Bible when I was one year old in the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. Yay, I memorized it in King James. Yay. By the way, that's a mistranslation. Nobody says yay when you go through the valley of shadow of death unless there's something broken in you. Yay, we're going through the valley. No, it's more like, whoa. <laughs> yay, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Your, your rod and your staff, they come for me. You prepare a table for me. There's the table again. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord says, you just came through the dark night of the soul, the valley of the shadow of death. What do you think when you go through the valley? Anyone ever been there? Anybody ever camped out there? How many know you lay by the still waters and you lay in the green pastures, but you just walk through the valley. Like, just, like people are like, I'm in the valley, just keep walking. <laughs> How long? Till you get out. <laughs> What's the one tool you need when you're in the valley? Keep going. One foot in front of another. I don't feel like walking. Keep walking. <laughs> right? How many of you have ever, you've been in there, you're like, here's one thing I learned. What is it? Keep walking. And you get out of the valley. And if you've ever been in the valley, you know what I'm talking about. You don't get out in, 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 happy, in happy land. You get out and you're struggling with what happened to me. Why did that happen? Why did it happen to me? Why did it happen to him? Why did it happen to me? What's wrong with me? What am I doing? And the Lord says, come, sit at the table, and let's cover your shame. And by the way, I'll be sitting with you, and the enemy can watch who you're having dinner with. Come watch me have dinner with the king of kings. Now how you feeling? A little different than you felt when I was in the shadow, huh? Oh yeah, I remember those voices in the shadow. Come on, tell it now. And the Lord covers my lame life. He covers it. I'm not saying he covers it up. I'm saying love covers me and says, you're all right. You know why you are right? Not because you're perfect. Not because you have it all together. Not because you've accomplished a lot of things. Not because you're good looking or you're this or you're that or you're smart. Because you're eating dinner with me. You got an invitation. That's why you're good. You're eating with the king. You are inherently noble. My nobility can cover anyone's shame. I don't know who you are in here. May I guarantee you? If you're human, this message means something to you. 
Hopefully not in this season, right? Hopefully you're like, yeah, I've been there. But there might be people, you're in the middle of it because we've all been there. Everyone in this room has been there. If you haven't been there, you're like six. <laughs> and maybe you're in the middle of it right now and you're just like, you know, I, man, you know, it's just like, I totally get it. I like to pray for you. I won't want to shame you. I don't want you to stand up so you stand out. I just want you to stand up so we can coin an E of you. So we can connect with you. So we can like, we get you. We've been there. Can we pray for you? Can we make this the shortest journey you've ever had out of shame? If that's you, and if you're watching by Bethel TV, I'm so, we're so glad you connected. We'd like you too. If you're living in shame, just stand up with us. And as a prophetic declaration that the prayers that we're praying for these folks, they're touching you too. Could you just stand? Like, this is the power of authenticity right here. You're standing, you're being vulnerable. All those things that Brene Brown said, you're being courageous, you're being, you're being vulnerable, you're being authentic. You're saying, that's me, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of that. That preacher's preaching my life right now. And by the way, I just preach my life. <laughs> I, can preach it with, I can preach it with zeal because I know what it's like because I've been there so many times. I'd just like us just to pray for these folks. Just thank you for what you're doing in the lives of these people. Lord, we thank you that you've caused all of us to have frailties and weaknesses and flaws. And Lord, we, you said when we're weak, you're strong, and that your strength is actually perfected in our weakness. And Lord, I pray that every single person who stood tonight, whether they stood by, uh, by Bethel TV or whether they stood in the room, that they would find grace for this time of need, that they would find the table of the Lord, that they would find the Lord covering their shame, covering their weakness, covering their brokenness. They would actually find pleasure in their brokenness, knowing that the Lord is very present help in a time of need. Lord, I pray that you would remove shame from them as far as the east is from the west. But Lord, you wouldn't just remove it from them. You would give them tools for the next time it comes to their door, that they would have weapons of warfare that are not carnal, but that are mighty for the pulling down of the, sh of the shame strongholds in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that every person in this room, every person listening to this message, that they would find koinonia, that they would find fellowship, that they would find people who accept them the way they are, that they would find people who love them in their current condition, that they'd find people who give them grace to overcome the, the things in their life that are, that are hurting them and maybe even killing them. Lord, we bless this night and we pray for mercy, we pray for wisdom, and Lord, we pray for insight into how to move our Johns, the John of the world, the people in our lives who we so love, but they feel so disconnected because of their own shame. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and how to break that wall down for them, how to help reach through that wall and say, I want you here. I don't care that you smoke. I only care that you love us and we love you. And Lord, we just bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It's such a good word. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.